People don't read magazines like they used to. But I know for a lot of women and some men, the magazine entitled Bon Appetit was, uh, was something that they enjoyed, you know, thumbing through, looking at. A journalist for that magazine asked his readers to submit examples of their worst dinner party experiences. A woman named B. Stein wrote about how the candles on her patio table fell over and set the whole table on fire. Another hostess with uh, 50 guests coming over for brunch when the city water department had an emergency right down the block from her, but they had to cut off the water for the whole street. I wonder how Martha had the energy and the skill to host such a large group of people on short notice. Now you've got to think, Jesus is talking with her sister. But when you get Jesus, you get a crowd. Jesus traveled with a posse, an entourage, a staff, and sometimes nothing more than 12 hangers-on, his crew. Jesus entered a village where a woman whose name was Martha welcomed him and them. As she rushed about making preparations, she noticed that Mary, her sister, wasn't helping her. Where was she? Well, she was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. In the 10th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, the 40th verse, we read, Martha burdened with much serving. Now, I have a good friend who's a, a priest, and he will always unpack certain words for you in Greek or Hebrew or Latin. I would never do that kind of thing to you, but the Greek word here for burdened, distracted, literally means to drag all around. Now think about that for just a minute. All the things that burden us are things we drag on around. Kind of like Santa Claus at the beginning of the night. She was stressed out. Author Anne Lamott has a great definition of fear that fits Martha's state of mind. Lamott says, fear stands for future event already ruined future event already ruined. So Martha brought her fear and her stress to Jesus. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself in the kitchen to do the serving? Tell her to help me. Well, Jesus said to her in reply, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. Jesus is setting a boundary with Martha. 
If Martha has a problem with her sister Mary, she should take it to Mary directly. What a concept. Jesus is refusing to be what those who are in the counseling business call to be triangulated, to be put in the middle of a three-way conversation. Martha is a saint. She's a saint of the church. But theoretically, what if Martha had been playing the victim, being a false martyr? In the moral paradigm oriented by false victimhood, moral worth is relative and dependent on something external. Well, if she hadn't done that to me, I wouldn't be feeling this way. Being a false victim or being falsely persecuted is loud and boisterous because it must call attention to itself in order to persuade anyone else or sometimes to hear the voice, everybody else, that they really are a victim. So, the train of thought goes something like this. I'm a follower of Christ, so I can expect to be persecuted. So, I am persecuted. Therefore, I must be a follower of Christ. Mm, kind of circular logic, it sounds like. The reality is that the person may simply have an abrasive personality. The person may be just a pain. Maybe a character defect. And it has very little to do with being a Catholic Christian. Of course, there is real persecution. Jesus says, and Jesus warns us, blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And St. Paul says, all who live a godly life in Christ shall suffer persecution. You ever read that verse? might be one that you might want to meditate on every once in a while. All who live a godly life in Christ shall, not will, not maybe, shall suffer persecution. Here is a formula to check if it's real persecution or not. If what someone else finds intolerable in you is your Christianity or specifically your righteous or moral living, then you can pretty well figure you're being persecuted for Christ's sake. To be clear, interpreting persecution or suffering as a sign of a Christian living is very different from allowing suffering to sanctify us. If the aforementioned strict formula does not check out for what is real persecution, well, then you can go to the second reading for today. It offers a huge consolation. In my flesh, St. Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ 
on behalf of his body, which is the church. This includes everyday inconveniences, social or vocational duties, impoliteness, sickness, and many other experiences which we can be united to the suffering of Jesus and applied to what is lacking in his mystical body, which is the church. Folks, if you've been around the Catholic Church for very long, or if you've been around someone who's been around the Catholic Church for very long, in the midst of pain, suffering, illness, persecution, somebody said to you for sure, just offer it up. Just offer it up. What Paul writes in that lesson for today is the biblical construct on which offer it up is made. So now let's go back to the gospel for a minute. Then Jesus says to Martha, there is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her. Jesus is also implying that in this life, our time is limited but demands upon us are endless. This was not God's design for human beings. By the time you get to the second chapter of Genesis, it says, by the seventh day, God had finished his work. He had been doing. So on the seventh day, he sat down in his lazy boy recliner, pulled up a ball game, and rested from all his work. We are not God, and therefore, we have to rest on Sunday, or one day a week if Sunday is not possible because of the nature of our work. You know, we've got, for instance, two officers here today. They're working that's part of their job. So maybe it's another day that they can pick to be that day off, that day for rest. Even, even if our weekday work is not finished. In fact, assuming that one is diligent in one's work, Monday through Saturday, then leaving things unfinished in order to rest on Sunday is meritorious, especially for type A people or very conscientious people. In fact, I had a visit with a young friend just yesterday. We were talking about how this person has had to take this and turn it on this and take one day and just not look. And it is extraordinarily difficult for those who work with her, but mostly for her. Just hard to do, to give it up. The more we have these or 
if you have them, these, an iPad, laptop, it goes with you everywhere. It's there all the time. Yeah. Parenthetically, when you go to Israel, you find out that the ultra-Orthodox have set society's rules on Shabbat, on Saturday. If you go into a hotel on a Saturday, don't touch the buttons. Don't call for the elevator. It'll come. It's on Sabbath rotation, which means you get in at the bottom, you go all the way to the top, and then automatically it goes to each floor, opens, lets people out, puts people on, and goes to the next floor. So, if you're in the lobby and you want to go to the second floor, you're going to take a trip to the 14th floor. And then you're going to come down because the rabbis have taught pushing the call button is work. How much more is this work? Assuming that one is diligent in their work, it may be important one day a week to give yourself and that thing a rest. Sunday rest, or we'll call it one day of the week rest, will, re will protect such people from the process of addiction to overwork, overfunctioning, codependency, sometimes substance abu abuse, and when that gets out of hand, addictions. For more than a decade, a British journalist, Oliver Berkman, wrote an advice column for the Guardian newspaper. In his final column, he shared some lessons he had learned over the years on the secret to living a happier life. So as we come to the end of this homily, that's what you were really wanting to hear, wasn't it? Now, I know, I know, over here, I know. So as we come to the end of the homily, here is an excerpt from his final article. There will always, always be too much to do. And this realization is liberating. Today, more than ever, there's just no reason to assume that there is any fit between the demands on your time, all the things you would like to do, feel you ought to do, and the amount of time available. The only viable solution is to make a shift from a life spent trying not to neglect anything to one spent proactively and consciously choosing what to neglect in favor of what matters most. I'm going to say that one sentence again. The only viable solution is to make a shift from a life spent trying not to neglect anything. Oh my goodness, what would my boss think? What would my friends think? What would my family think? Da 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 da. -da. To one spent 
proactively and consciously choosing what to neglect in favor of that Mary portion, a favor of what matters most. Sometimes, sometimes, sitting quietly with Jesus for a while is the very best thing we can do. Amen.